0: Hello, I'm Pippa Curtis and welcome to the July issue of Worcester Talking Magazine. the Bratislava Hot Serenaders, a 21-piece band from Slovakia. If you missed their visit to Worcester last weekend, they'll be in Dudley on the 21st of this month. With me in the studio today, however, are Catherine Neal and Phil Lee. On the other side of the glass is our redoubtable engineer and producer for this evening, John Plush. I suspect he won't thank me for saying that, but a lot of credit for this edition of the magazine must go to John, as he has supplied all the pre-recorded items we're including, as well as sourcing the opening and closing music and offering additional articles as well. So thank you, John. As you will be aware, this is the first magazine edition our team have put together. So we would love as much feedback as possible from all our listeners. For whilst we select what we hope you might want to listen to, it is after all your magazine. So we want the content to reflect your preferences. So that's the preamble done. Let's get started. We've tried to put together an edition that has some themes running through it, one of which is railways. And to kick us off, Phil is going to read a poem called, very appropriately, Opening Hymn."
1: I'm very interested in railways, as those of you who have heard the Talking Newspaper may well know. And I'm going to start with this poem, which I guess must have been written in the middle of the 19th century. And it looks at some of the advantages and disadvantages of this new form of transport. "'If you will listen to my song, I'll not detain you long.' On the 1st of May, the folks did throng to view the Oxford Railway, and to have a ride, what a treat, father, mother, son and daughter, all along the line like one o'clock, by fire, steam and water. Riffum, tiffum, mirth and fun, don't you wonder how it's done, carriages without horses run on the Hampton and Oxford Railway.' "'From villages and from the towns, the gents and ladies flocked around, A music through the air did sound along the Oxford Railway. "'There was bakers, butchers, nailers too, lots of gentlemen in blue, "'and all did strive to get a view along the Oxford Railway. "'An old woman peeping at the line said, "'I wouldn't care a farthing, but they destroyed my cottage fine "'and cut away my garden, where I so many years did dwell, "'growing lots of cabbages and potatoes.' But worse than all, my daughter Nell went off with the navigators. In Ulster lives a bonny lass, I think they call her Nancy. She says a trip upon the line greatly would please my fancy. I will ride by steam and work by steam. By steam I'll on be hurried. And when I can a husband find, by steam I will be married. And when the line is finished at both ends, you may send your cocks and hens and go and visit all your friends, your ducks and turkeys, pigs and geese, to any part, wherever you please. You may also send your butter and eggs, and they can ride, who've got no legs, by the Hampton and Oxford Railway.
0: I wonder whether they'll produce a poem when hs 2s completed <laughs> to sort of compare and contrast. I be at all surprised. <laughs> well, from wheels to heels. Mm. Mm, dodgy link. <laughs> Catherine recently interviewed somebody who had completed the Worcestershire, Worcestershire Way And to make it more lively, we thought we'd make it more like a real interview. So I'm assuming Lorna, that's the person who was interviewed, Lorna's persona, and uh, reading her replies
2: to Catherine's questions. So take it away, Catherine. Thank you. When temperatures in Britain reach the high 20s, many of us like the excuse to relax in the shade with a cool drink. Not Lorna Cameron from Martin Hussingtree, who undertook the Worcestershire Way, all 31 miles of it, last Friday, though she didn't exactly plan it to coincide with the heatwave. Along with two friends, Lorna was walking to raise money for St Richard's Hospice. And this is what Lorna had to say when I interviewed her on Sunday. Lorna, when did you decide to undertake the walk and Why? It has been on my bucket list
0: ever since I saw the ridge of the Abberley Hills stretching out in both directions when we moved to Martin Hussingtree 20 years ago. We live so near the M5 and the big urban sprawl around Birmingham, and yet when you look at the ridge, you know that there's nothing beyond but glorious countryside stretching into Wales and beyond to the Irish Sea. The idea of walking it for a good cause, such as St Richard's, seemed the perfect combination. The older I get, the more I have come to appreciate the amazing work of the hospice and how fortunate we are to have such a good one on our doorstep. It was the untimely death of yet another good friend in the spring which made me decide that we should seize the day and do these things before it is too late. I happened to mention the idea to two dog-walking neighbours and Team Hussingtree was formed. What is the Worcestershire Way? Well, it starts in Budleigh and follows the ridge of the Abberley and Suckley Hills, ending in Great Malvern, having skirted around the top of the North Hill, the sting in the tail. It is not an ancient trail, but a path which follows the natural contours of the hills. Once you'd decided to meet the challenge, how did you train? i just decided to start walking most days and gradually increase my distance to see how far I got. I'm fortunate that we spend a lot of time in Devon. The coastal paths have been ideal training. Finally, we decided we'd better check our route and did two long sections of the walk. I would say anyone could do it. I had probably walked 20 miles three times in the month leading up to the walk. You'll be amazed at how your body responds. The first time I walked seven miles, I was so tired and I kept thinking, how can I possibly walk five times as far
2: and yet somehow I have? Lorna told me that 160 people registered for the walk, which was organised by St Richard's Hospice. It was amazing
0: how quickly everyone found their own pace, and for much of the walk we were on our own,
2: aware that most were in front and just a few behind. Water was provided at intervals along the way, which of course was crucial on such a hot day. Abilene WI provided refreshments at the clock tower, and the Talbot at Nightwick provided lunch and welcome shade. There were even massages available for those with strained muscles. Lorna is keen that special mention should go to the proprietor of the village post office at Longley Green, who stayed open for us stragglers as the
0: water outside had run out, and even better, enabled us to go inside his wonderful
2: air-conditioned shop to buy an ice cream. Team Hussingtree started at 6am and arrived at the finishing Great Malvern three minutes before 9pm. What was the best thing about the day, Lorna?
0: The best thing was just being outside on a beautiful day, from the cool and freshness of the early morning to the evening sun at the end of the day. I shall remember looking back at the ridge from Malvern and realising one had walked along the entire length, almost as far as the eye could see. It was very special, knowing that you had been privileged to see what I think is some of our most beautiful English countryside. The team Valley is so unspoiled. We saw the Morvans from unusual angles, not just straight across. And then finally the whole of Worcestershire, stretching out towards the Licky Hills and around the Cotswold edge. Any low moments? Oh yes, Uh, Nightwick to Longley Green. The book says four miles, but it seemed to take forever. We definitely slowed down after lunch. And how did you feel when you'd finished? Lightheaded, elated and emotional. I had decided to walk in memory of my father, who had first introduced me to the Team Valley, my father-in-law, with whom, as a family, we have done lots of walking, and Mike, the friend who had recently died. But there were other good friends who have died over the last ten years. It may sound rather morbid, but as a way of distracting myself from the fatigue of the last miles, I thought about them, remembering the happy times.
2: Lorna says that it just happened to be the case that she was returning to an empty house, so when she got home, she cooked herself bacon and egg, because she was still craving salt. Then I realised that there was a good
0: chance that if I got in a bath, I might never get out, so I just had a shower and went to
2: bed. Would she do it again? Lorna says she would certainly walk her favourite sections again from Walsgrave Hill to Nightwick. But I gained the impression that Friday was such a beautiful day, not least because of the weather, that she feels a repeat walk would never be quite as rewarding. To date, Lorna has raised over £2,000, with support still coming in. And if you would like to contribute, please go to the following website, www.justgiving.com forward slash fundraising, and look up Lorna Cameron.
0: I have to say, greatest respect, I couldn't do 31 miles, and I consider myself a walker. I don't know about you two. 15 (laughs) 15 hours on such a hot day. And it's not just flat walking, it's up and down. Up and down, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Right, putting Phil into bat again. Oh, I'm full of dodgy puns. Um, As you know, Phil is an ardent cricket supporter and spends a fair bit of his free time down at New Road. And this next piece is written by him after a particularly exciting day's action, which he wanted to try and convey.
1: Yes, thank you, Pips. I've been a a cricket fan ever since my father took me to watch Tom Graveney in the 1950s when he played for Gloucestershire. I suppose inspiration's one of our themes this evening, and when I got home from watching this particular piece of sport, I felt moved to write this piece, and I'm happy to share it with you. It's called A Cricketing Masterclass. For the spectator, much professional sport is of a fairly ordinary nature. There are moments which transcend the commonplace, but they're relatively rare, unless the team or the individual is very special. Uh, Germany in football, perhaps Usain Bolt in sprinting, Venus or Serena Williams in tennis. And then there's the question of the immediacy of live sport as against media coverage, the texture of a memorable sporting occasion experienced as it happens at the event. Let's consider a very local illustration. It's the end of May at New Road County Cricket Ground in Worcester. The weather is warm, the crowd size adequate, the team are playing well. Opponents Leicestershire have put up an outstanding score of 376, a record for that county. Worcestershire might reach it, but something fairly outstanding will have to happen if they are to do so. Consider there are 11 batsmen. If the effort is shared evenly, each one will have to score over 30 runs. Either that, and cricket doesn't generally work that way, or someone will have to make a very big score, and quickly, for this is a limited overs game. The man in whom local hopes are centred is Moeen Ali, an international player, talented, exciting, a potential match winner. As he settles to bat, the atmosphere is suffused with expectation, breaths are held. He is caught out almost straight away. The atmosphere deflates. Disappointment cleanses the air of optimism. Onlookers share doubt and unease. You can't hear all their words, but you know what they convey. And then in comes a player new to us, an Australian, Callum Ferguson, for his first game for the county. We don't really know him or what he can do, but we know that Australians relish this sort of situation, so we transfer our hopes from the known to the unknown. He starts well, very well. And, as the runs accumulate, something else happens. It's the building of a vibration composed of excitement, delight, even awe. It has a musical quality, that of an anthem. It starts with the crowd and then, as if turning full circle, it energises that crowd. It alerts and then impresses itself on the players of both sides, conveying for Worcestershire's batsmen motivation, inspiration. For Leicestershire, it's an insidious element of doubt. Can Worcestershire, can this young man in particular, really reach this daunting target? The stream of runs is now a torrent. The hitting is crisp, confident, powerful. The sound of a cricket ball being hit truly and hard is unmistakable, as is the crack-thud of the ball having evaded the fielders smacking into the boundary board. These sounds are the keynotes of the soloists, and Callum Ferguson is now both solo instrumentalist and conductor. Moreover, they are notes in perfect harmony with the orchestration provided by those who were the audience but are now actively playing a crucial part. Gone now are the novels, the crosswords, the knitting, the magazines, so much in evidence earlier as we called on the props that we watchers use to fill the pauses that cricket inevitably brings. The mobile phones that demanded so much attention earlier are now discarded. Now we are involved. We know this game is on the verge of becoming an I-was-there moment, and we're right. Each run begets an accompanying passage of musical delight, sixes with arresting notes of joy and incredulity. These reactions will reach an even sharper intensity at each major milestone, 50, 100, 200, 250, nearly there, there. Ferguson will score 192, others the balance. He will be caught by the wicketkeeper, just seven runs short of victory, but by then the tide is irreversible. He will be clapped and cheered back to the pavilion, the crescendo of cheers sitting oddly beside the disappointment, elation next to deflation, team victory alongside individual disappointment. For Callum, the pride in his 192 is offset by the sense of having been but a few grace notes from that magic 200. He has beaten a 25-year record for the county, but he won't know that yet as he leaves the field. The performance is finished. This match might have been no more than the equivalent of a community sing-along. Social, sociable, fun, forgettable. Most matches are, and maybe the next match will be just that. But this, this has been grand opera.
0: I think you've missed your um, forte. No, what's it, your vocation? <laughs> it's just a stunning piece of writing. How tiny, Can you, you please do another one for next time? <laughs> Lovely. I feel anything that's going to come after will be a bit <laughs>
3: Um
0: And it's me, unfortunately. I've, I'm going to read an article by Caitlin Moran, which appeared recently in the Times magazine. It's about giving blood. Don't worry, there's nothing squeamish in it. Just a light-hearted look into something I think that's rather special and perhaps undervalued. All church halls smell the same, a combination of hot dust, floor polish and tea. All church halls sound the same, whether they're holding a jumble sale or collecting votes on polling day, a polite British murmur, occasionally punctured by a baby yelling, and the sound of the pensionable samovar clanking into action. But today the church hall looks different. There are two huge blood donation vans in the car park, and inside... A bustle of nurses in blue tabards, servicing 12 reclining chairs, where people lie, giving blood. Outside, it's beautiful. Swifts, dolphins scream as they chase insects. Horse chestnuts are in full bloom. But in here, people have given up picnics, walks, lunch hours and housework to give a pint of blood, to be kept in plastic bags carefully labelled and stored in refrigerated units until needed. One man has bought his toddler with one hand he keeps a bottle jammed in her mouth while the other arm is tethered by a needle. Another man, in a suit, turns up. He looks as if he spends most of his day shouting at people on the phone, making big things happen. He has an air of peevishness, as if in his time he sent back a lot of soup in restaurants. Today, however, he sits patiently on a chair waiting. He is greeted as a regular. Here, he's taking a holiday from being a bit of a bastard. It looks like a relief to him, as if maybe most of the time he has too much blood from all the red wine and steak, and it's quite calming to have it drained away and put to use inside someone less driven. I haven't given blood for, goodness, 18 years. First, there were babies, then work, and then there I admitted I was probably too drunk. I know why I want to give blood. I have no religion, but to donate feels like an act of thankfulness. It is fascinating to be this useful. I'm taken into a booth by a nurse who does a finger prick and drops a bead of blood into copper sulphate. Iron test, she says. The bead sinks. My blood is heavy with iron. How amazing to be full of metal to see it. On the reclining chair, the needle is bigger than I remember it, hollow, like a tunnel, being pushed into a ring road of arteries and veins. I make myself watch because this is interesting too. It hurts as much as pulling out a single eyebrow hair. I look around at everyone else, all calmly lying back as they donate. As Tony Hancock put it, very nearly an armful. I'm surprised when I start to cry. It's one of those cries that just enters with no warning, like when Rick Mile used to make a cameo in Blackadder. It's because in the past few years, we've been led to believe that we're a bit harried, a bit unyielding, that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, and the smart thing to do is to harden your heart and look out for yourself. We've split into camps, tribes. To begin to talk is to fall into an argument and reveal yourself as someone else's problem or enemy. Baby boomers are pitted against millennials, leavers against remainers. And yet, even in our furiously bonded groups, we've never felt more anxious or alone. Along with sparrows, bees and skylarks, it feels as if love is in decline too. You do not see it around so much anymore. You do not open the door and hear it singing. But here, this room is full of the least talked about love. Love for someone you've never met. Here is a system set up without profit or material reward based on a simple idea of a country never wanting to see someone bleed out on a table when there are a thousand people out there who would have given their blood in a literal heartbeat if they'd been asked. This is where you are asked. This is where you can lie on the bed and scrunch your hand into a fist over and over, sending all the luck in the world to the team who will, one day, one terrible, unlucky, critical day for someone, Break open the seal on your bag and try to keep someone alive. Maybe this heartbeat will turn someone's lips from blue to pink again. Bring back a mother or a father or a child. All the calmness and love in this room is being sent into some furious, terrified future in A&E that you will never know about, but you will be the magic that stops a life from being undone. Perhaps the life of someone you know, perhaps your own. Perhaps you're not donating at all, but lending, as others once may be lent to you. The church hall, the vans, the nurses, the donors, the samovar clanking. Britain thinks it's having an identity crisis, but a country is simply what it does. And it does this in church halls like this, smelling of hot dust and love. So perhaps a bit flowering over the top, but as a fellow blood donor, it resonated with me. That's and a very
1: powerful piece of writing. Oh,
0: mm-hmm. I thought so. Yeah. Um, and I did do just a little bit of research afterwards because it made me interested in you know the history of blood doning. And I took down a few little points. It won't take long. We'll just share with you about facts. Um, would either of you know when the first human to human transfusion took place? No. no, no. 1818. Um, the British obstetrician James Blundell injected a patient suffering from internal bleeding with about 12 ounces of blood from several donors. Sadly, the patient died, (laughs) but he did show initial improvement. I don't think much really happened, you know, successfully for the next 80, 90 years. But the two significant developments came at the beginning of the 20th century. First of all, with the discovery of different blood groups and the realization that you had to have compatible blood. Um, And also what was discovered was that adding sodium citrate to blood prevented it clotting. Doing this and refrigerating it, made it possible to store blood and the concept of blood blanks was developed. And that happened during World War I. So, there were, you know, it helped a few people there. Um, the first volunteer blood donating service was established in London in 1922. And in 1948, the development of the plastic bag revolutionized the service. So, I, as I say, being a blood donor, I, I find that quite a fun article. Well, not fun, but anyway. Right. It's time for something a little different. John Plush has been out and about, and he wandered into the literary world of Worcester, where he met up with one of our local authors, Angela Lanyon. Here's what he found out.
4: the field was exactly as she remembered it from 15 years ago the long slope up to the hedge on the skyline the small wood over to the right and down where she was standing and the little stream with the wooden bridge
5: the only difference was was that that now now the bridge bridge had had a handrail and there was a signpost which read public footpath Jean sighed the scene brought back a lot of memories So why had she come? The opening of Hands Across the Water,
6: a story by Angela Lanyon, read first there by Judy Struth in an audio podcast for the People's Friend magazine, and continued in a rare and definitely the most authentic version (laughs) by the authoress herself, who happens to be sitting next to me, here in her living room in Worcester. Angela, do you know how many plays and books you've written?
5: No, not really. I know that I've written 11 murder mysteries and about 30 children's theatre plays, um, a full-length trilogy of about a a quarter of a million words um, and uh, a miscellaneous collection of short and long plays. I tend to lose track. What was your first work to be published? I think it was a play called Buried by Blossom, which was almost the first... Uh, the sort of success that I had uh, was when I was working in Worcester and um, Blossom is the name of a a funeral director, Beloved, our service supplies official mourners. And this lady, her name is Annie Body. She's had a life in which nothing whatsoever has happened, but he gives her a new name and a backstory where she was a secret agent, a life story to be buried with.
6: (laughs) When they published that, how did that feel?
5: Oh, I was delighted, I was delighted. I was even more delighted, in a way, when it was done at the Brighton Festival and the um, shroud in which she was buried at the end was Vera Lynn's nightie. Why Vera
6: Lynn's nightie?
5: Well, because when the, in the end, he gives her a, a, a volume, this is your life, only it's this is your death, and she sits in her coffin, in her shroud that she's picked, because it looks glamorous and so on, saying this is the first time anything's ever happened to her.
6: What inspired you to that storyline?
5: Because I was sitting on the top of a bus one day and I saw this little old lady get off it, rather drab and depressed, and I thought there must be something behind her and that was what was behind her in my mind. (laughs) So why did you start writing? I I started writing almost as soon as I could hold a pencil. I did as a child and I can remember the first things that I wrote were written on blue airline paper in blue crayon, very badly spelt. Because I can still not spell well I find a great hamper when I'm doing a crossword. who's your favorite author I love I love Tolkien I love Pratchett I love Jane Austen um, I read a lot of biographies and history um I don't I, I can't really say that I've got a got a favorite. love Ag- Agatha Christie and um, lots of thrillers but not so much the 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 blood and guts I like what the Americans call cozies, which are um, uh, set in country houses, and so that when I wrote my own, I had I I used because I was very constricted as to what I could do, um, a group of people who were close together and hated each other has always worked out very well.
6: When you've got the idea for a book or
5: a play, how do you set about writing it? Oh. Well. An idea comes almost like a hologram, that all the bits and pieces are there, but in order to put it down on paper, you have to make it linear. Uh, And I don't always begin at the beginning because I, I need to know who's going to do what. And I do have to have in my mind a very clear picture of where it's happening because place is very important and place has an effect on what people do. So I suppose that I think um, when I get an idea, I have to nail down the place first and then the kind of people that might be in that place and then let them work against each other. I, I make quite a lot of notes. I used to make an awful lot of notes for children's theatres, but I don't make quite so many now because I can see my way more clearly.
6: You were educated in Sheffield, but you've lived here for some 46 years. Yes. Um, how many characters... Are any of your characters and places in your books based on people and places you know around here?
5: Ah, uh, I suppose as the characters are, they're not actually. They're, they're characteristics of people, which then become amalgamated with characteristics of other people, because whenever you. You meet somebody, you 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 take away something, and you leave, you leave something. It's kind of forensic in a way that you exchange genes and bits of things and ideas, and so those all grow, those all grow together. Um, places I'm not too sure about. I think places are more Scotland, where I lived for a long time, Wales, where I lived for a long time, Cornwall, where I come from and have lived. Um, And also bits and pieces that I pick up out of articles in the newspaper, things that seemed to me interesting. There was one um, which was really quite extraordinary. I think it was the second murder mystery that I wrote. It was called A Taste for Murder. And one of the um, characters had just come back from... She was um, uh, an environmentalist and she'd just come back from Brazil and all about the Brazil nuts and so on, which were actually kind of crucial to the story. But um, one of the other characters was allergic to peanuts and the murder was committed, and this is giving it away to everybody who sees it in the future, because the the young man actually took a mouthful of peanuts and ate them and then kissed her. And she went into anaphylactic shock. And this, in fact, I read in the paper a couple of months later, did actually happen to somebody. Gracious.
6: (laughs) Many of our listeners will be regular users of talking books, and as we heard earlier, Hands Across the Water is an example of one of your short stories that's been recorded in that form. I'm interested in how you feel about how the talking book handles the transition from the printed word to the
5: spoken word. I think it's a very good idea. Um, you do, in a sense, write differently for people to read it. But I try to write for people to read aloud and try to use simple language. I think it was Somerset Maugham said, never use a long Latin word when a short English one will do. And I think that's important. What I do find very difficult with plays is that the voices that I hear in my head are not necessarily the voices of the people playing the parts.
6: How how much control do you have, do you even want to have,
5: over an actor's interpretation of your characters? Well, when I've been directing, I've wanted to have a lot of control and had quite a lot of trouble with one or two actors at different times who wouldn't do as they were told, and uh, I said the whole point of a director is to direct. You've written a lot of plays. Do you prefer writing for books or
6: for the theatre?
5: I don't think... If you've got a good story, it doesn't really matter. It's the way that the story actually presents itself. Um, the, the 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 trilogy that I've written couldn't have been written for anything else unless it was written for the cinema with somebody like sort of Spielberg or Peter Jackson or something like that, um, because that's um it's a quest story, and it covers a well a fair number of years but a wide variety of landscapes, but when you're on the stage you're in a confined space, and a great believer in the unities of time and place and continuation. So that I think that makes it easier for the audience.
6: A lot of your plays are for children. Yes. How does writing for children's theatre differ from adults' theatre?
5: Um, well, it can be much more inventive and imaginative because children have much wider and inventive minds. Um, you have to be a little bit careful that you're not going to frighten them too much. But as long as you've got a strong anchor man, which is usually a woman. Um, that that works because the children, as so long as they've got their, their mother there, they can cope with most things, and so long as they've got this strong um, anchor person who knows what's going on, they, they're usually quite happy.
6: It's certainly very popular with the children, as we're going to hear in just a moment, as we finish with a little bit of your children's play, Catastrophe.
5: Oh, Catastrophe. Oh, it's lovely, Catastrophe. It's fun, because I had a wonderful actor called Rob Russell, who actually, in the end, became a member of the Royal Shakespeare Company, so he was very good, and he was absolutely marvellous as Dead Eye Dick.
6: Before we're drowned out by the young audience at that play, Angela Lanyon, thank you very much. Thank you.
3: He's wearing your clothes! My clothes! Where's my milk? Where's my washing? Where's my office?
0: I, I, oh! Well, that was uh. (sighs) That was loud and quite fun, I hope, for everybody. It was an excerpt from the Norbury's Theatre's version of the children's play Catastrophe by local author Angela Lanyon, who was talking there to John Plush. And many thanks to the People's Friend magazine for letting us use part of their podcast. Right, you've had enough of my voice. It's Catherine's turn and I'll let her introduce this
2: next section. Thank you, Pippa. Um, I've put some poems together, um, which we're going to all take a turn at reading. um, And I've taken as a common theme High Summer with an additional dimension in some of them, the high summer of a hundred years ago, that is to say round about July 1918, which was, of course, the final summer of World War I, when fighting was continuing alongside a gathering sense of grief and of the sheer number of casualties. Um, and it does seem to me that in some of these poems, as you, as you will hear, the beauty of an English summer, just like the one that we're experiencing at the moment, underlines the melancholy of loss, and of passing time. And I'm going to start with a poem by Ivor Gurney, who was born in Gloucester. Um, and his poetry frequently refers to our part of the country. Um, Gurney was a combatant in World War I. Um, he'd studied composing at the Royal College of Music before the war, and he also took up writing poetry. He did survive the war, but he suffered psychologically, and in, in in fact, very sadly, he was never to recover fully. He died in a mental hospital in 1937. This poem is called Near Midsummer. Seven's most fair today. See what a tide of blue she pours, and flecked all way with gold, and what a crew of seagulls, snowy white, float round her to delight villagers, travellers. A brown thick flood is hers, in winter when the rains wash down from Midland plains, halting wayfarers, low meadows flooding deep with torrents from the steep mountains of Wales and small hillocks of no degree, streams jostling to the sea, wrangling yet brotherly. Blue June has altered all, the river makes its fall with murmurous still sound past Priding's fairy ground and steep down Newnham Cliff. Oh, boys in trenches, if you could see what any may escaping town for the day, strong seven all aglow, but tideless running slow, far Cotswolds all a shimmer, blue Breeden leagues away, huge Malverns farther, dimmer, then you would feel the fire of the first days inspire you when, despising all save England's honour's call, you dared the worst for her, faced all things without fear, so she might stand alway a free mother of men, high queen as on this day. There would flood through you again the old faith, the old pride, wherein our fathers died, whereby our land was builded and dignified. Um, so there, Gurney talks to the boys in the trenches. Uh, the next poem is dated July 1917, and it's by Rose Macaulay. Uh, an established writer who, during World War I, worked in the British Propaganda Department and later on during the war she also worked as a nurse and as a civil servant in the War Office. And her poem here uh, offers a voice, interestingly, not from the trenches but from those who stayed at home and experienced the war in that way. And this poem is called Picnic with the subtitle of July 1917. We lay and ate sweet berries in the bracken of hurt wood, like a choir of singers singing low the dark pines stood. Behind us climbed the surrey hills, wild, wild in greenery, at our feet the downs of Sussex broke to an unseen sea. And life was bound in a still ring, drowsy and quiet and sweet, when heavily up the south-east wind the great guns beat. We did not wince, we did not weep, we did not curse or pray, we drowsily heard, and someone said, they sound clear today. We did not shake with pity and pain, or sicken and blanch white, we said, if the wind's from over there, there'll be rain tonight. Once pity we knew, and rage we knew, and pain we knew, too well, as we stared and peered dizzily through the gates of hell. But now Hell's Gates are an old tale, remote the anguish seems. The guns are muffled and far away, dreams within dreams. And far and far are Flanders mud and the pain of Picardy and the blood that runs there runs beyond the wide waste sea. We're shut about by guarding walls. We've built them, lest we run mad from dreaming of naked fear and of black things done. We're ringed all round by guarding walls. So high, they shut the view. Not all the guns that shatter the world can quite break through. O guns of France, O guns of France, be still, you crash in vain. Heavily up the south wind throb dull dreams of pain. Be still, be still, south wind, lest your blowing should bring the rain. We'll lie very quiet on Hurt Hill, And sleep once again. Oh, we'll lie quite still, nor listen, nor look, while the earth's bounds reel and shake, lest battered too long, our walls and we should break, should break.
1: Thank you, Catherine. So, what happened to those who survived and came home from the trenches? The next reading is from a short novel, J. L. Carr's A Month in the Country, first published in 1980 and shortlisted for the Booker Prize in that year. The main character and narrator is a soldier who is struggling in 1920 to recover some normality. He has retrained as an art restorer and he has been commissioned to uncover a medieval wall painting in a remote church in Yorkshire. This is near the beginning as he wakes up for the first time in the church tower where he is to sleep. That first morning I rolled up my blanket and, avoiding the bell-rope, walked across to the south window and pulled away my coat hitched across to keep out the rain. It was a simple, too-light window, unglazed, of course, with a simple mullion strong enough to take my weight. The rain had ceased and the dew glittered on the graveyard grass. Gossamer drifted down air currents. A pair of blackbirds picked around after insects. A thrush was singing where I could see him in one of the ash trees. And beyond lay the pasture I had crossed on my way from the station, with a bell tent pitched near a stream, then more fields rising towards a dark rim of hills. And as it lightened, a vast and magnificent landscape unfolded. I turned away. It was immensely satisfying. Then I unpacked my food store, tea, marge, cocoa, rice, a loaf, thinking that I should need to scrounge a couple of tins with tight lids to keep the stuff airtight. I primed my stove with meths, fried a couple of rashers and made a thick sandwich. It was very pleasant sitting on the boards, leaning against a wall, because through my window I could still see the hills heaving up like the back of some great sea creature, dark woods washing down its sides into the vale. And then god help me on my first morning in the first few minutes of my first morning i felt that this alien northern countryside was friendly that i would turned a corner and that this summer of 1920 which was to smolder on until the first leaves fell was to be a propitious season of living a blessed time i told myself that i didn't care how long the job took me what was left of july august september even october i was going to be happy "'Live simply, spend as little as paraffin, bread, vegetables, "'and a bit of bully beef now and then might cost me. "'The marvellous thing was coming into this haven of calm water "'and, for a season, not having to worry my head with anything "'but uncovering their wall-painting for them. "'And afterwards, perhaps, I could make a new start, "'forget what the war and the rows with Vinnie had done to me, "'and begin where I'd left off. "'This is what I need,' I thought.' A new start, and afterwards, maybe I won't be a casualty any more.
0: And we finish this section with two very recent poems, both of which share some themes and ideas with the earlier ones. First of all, a poem by Helen Dunmore from the collection Inside the Wave, published shortly after her death in June last year. The Duration Here they are on the beach, where the boy played for fifteen summers, before he grew too old for French cricket, shrimping, and rock pools. Here is the place where he built his dam year after year. See, the stream still comes down just as it did, and spreads itself on the sand into a dozen channels. How he enlisted them those splendid spades, those sunbonneted girls furiously shoring up the ramparts. Here they are on the beach just as they were those fifteen summers. She has a rough towel ready for him. The boy was always last out of the water. She would rub him down hard, chafe him like a foal up on its legs for an hour and trembling, all angles. She would dry carefully between his toes. Here they are on the beach, the two of them sitting on the same square of mackintosh, the same tartan rug quality lasts there are children in the water and mothers patrolling the sea's edge calling them back from the danger zone beyond the breakers how her heart would stab when he went out too far once she flustered into the water shouting until he swam back he was ashamed of her then wouldn't speak wouldn't look at her even her skirt was sopped she had to wring out the hem She wonders if father remembers. Later, when they've had their sandwiches, she might speak of it. There are hours
2: yet, thousands by her reckoning. Finally, a poem by Carol Ann Duffy from her collection The Bees. It contains a number of beautiful poems about bees, that collection, and about summer, of course. But this poem takes us back to the theme of World War I and suggests some wistful ideas about the power, otherwise, of poetry. It's called Last Post, and it begins with two lines from a poem by Wilfred Owen. In all my dreams, before my helpless sight, he plunges at me, guttering, choking, drowning. If poetry could tell it backwards, true, begin that moment shrapnel scythed you to the stinking mud. But you get up, amazed, watch bled bad blood run upwards from the slime into its wounds. See lines and lines of British boys rewind back to their trenches, kiss the photographs from home, mothers, sweethearts, sisters, younger brothers, not entering the story now to die and die and die. Dolce, no. Decorum, no. Pro patria mori. You walk away. You walk away, drop your gun, fixed bayonet, like all your mates do too. Harry, Tommy, Wilfred, Edward, Bert, and light a cigarette. There's coffee in the square, warm French bread and all those thousands dead are shaking dried mud from their hair and queuing up for home. Freshly alive, a lad place Tipperary to the crowd, released from history. The glistening, healthy horses fit for heroes, kings. You lean against a wall; your several million lives still possible, and crammed with love, work, children, talent, English beer, good food. You see the poet tuck away his pocketbook and smile. If poetry could tell it backwards, then it would.
0: Well, that was lovely, very
2: powerful. Mm. I feel I need
0: to go away and read it. <laughs> <laughs> well, moving from. Dare I say it, World War One to World War Two, But on a much lighter note, Phil's going to read an excerpt from Spike Milligan's book. I'm not sure what it's called, though, Phil. Ah, Adolf Hitler, my part in his downfall take it away
1: (laughs) thank you yes war generates a whole uh, body of literature doesn't it what we've heard is very moving this is very amusing you won't be surprised to hear this is spike milligan who uh, was one of the founders of the goon show in the 1950s the brief background to this piece is that he's received all sorts of numbers of call-up papers and he's ignored all of them but he finally decides he'd better go along and sign on i joined the regiment Lugging a suitcase tied with traditional knotted string, I made my way to Headquarters 56th Heavy Regiment Royal Artillery. Using sign language, they directed me to D-Battery. They were stationed in a building called Worthing Home, an evacuated girls' school in Hastings Road. As I entered the drive, a thing of singular military ugliness took my eye. It was Battery Sergeant Major Jumbo Day. "'His hair was so shorn his neck seemed to go straight up the back of his hat "'and his face was suffused, red, by years of drinking his way to promotion. "'Oi, where are you going? It ain't a girl school no more, isn't it?' "'I said. Never mind, I'll join the regiment instead.' "'He screwed up his eyes. You're not Milligan, are you? "'Actually, I am. A beam of sadistic pleasure spread over his face.' We've been waiting for you, he said, pushing me ahead of him with a stick. He drove me into what was D-battery office. The walls, once white, were now thrice grey. From a peeling ceiling hung a 40-watt bulb that, when lit, made the room darker. A janker waller was giving the bare floor a stew-coloured hue by slopping a mop around, rearranging the dirt. On the wall was a calendar with a naked girl advertising cigarettes. Below it was a newspaper cut-out Neville Chamberlain, grinning upwards. Fronting the fireplace was a trestle table covered with a merry gray blanket. A pile of OHMS letters, all addressed to me, were tucked into the corner of the blotter. In the lid of a cardboard shoebox was a collection of rubber bands, paper clips, sealing wax, string, and a lead weight. My pulses raced. Here was the heart of a great fighting machine. Seated behind this mighty war organ was a middle-aged pink, puffy-faced man in his early fifties, wearing a uniform in its late seventies. Parts that had frayed had been trimmed with leather. These included cuffs, elbows, pockets, gaiters and all trailing edges. For this reason he was known as Leather Suitcase. His maiden name was Major Startling Grope. "'This is Gunny Milligan, sir,' said the B.S.M. When they'd both finished laughing, the Major spoke. "'Where have you been and why are you wearing civilian clothes?' "'They wouldn't let me on the train naked, sir.' "'What I mean is, why aren't you in uniform?' "'I'm not at war with anyone, sir.' Silence when you speak to an officer,' said the B.S.M. "'The Major, who was fiddling with a rubber band, slid it over his finger. "'Does this mean we're engaged, sir?' I asked. Silence," said the B.S.M. "'I suppose,' said Suitcase, "'you know you're three months late arriving. "'I'll make up for it, sir. I'll fight knights as well.' "'All these attempts at friendly humour fell on stony ground. "'I was marched to a bare room by a bombardier. "'He pointed to a floorboard. "'You're trying to tell me something,' I said.' Your bed, right? Right, right, bombardier. I'm a bombardier already? Ah, cheeky bastard, eh? Got the very job for you. He gave me a scrubbing bush with two bristles, showed me a three-acre cookhouse floor and pointed down. He was still trying to tell me something. Leering, leering over all this was a dwarf-like battery cook, bombardier Nash, who looked like Casimodo with the hump reversed. He was doing things to sausages. Three hours scrubbing and my knees in my trousers went through. To make matters worse, there were no uniforms in the queue stores. I got a racy figure on guard, dark blue trousers gone at the knee, blue double-breasted chalk-striped jacket, lemon shirt shirt, and white tie, all set off with a steel helmet, boots and gaiters. It wasn't easy. Halt! Who goes there, I challenge. When they saw me, the answer was piss off. I had to be taken off guard duties. In time, I got a uniform. It made no difference.
0: It was lighthearted, hearted wasn't it? <laughs> it was indeed. And continuing with that theme, yeah. Catherine has an article uh, on the demise of handwriting. I think, isn't it?
2: Yes, it is. It, this article was published um, on Wednesday, the June twenty-seventh, in the Times, and it um, raises some interesting questions about um, things moving on. Um, writing is on the wall for the mighty pen and handwritten letters. The pen was mightier than the sword and put up a fight against the typewriter and computer but it has finally conceded defeat to the smartphone. Two-thirds of young adults say that they use a pen less than five times a week according to a survey and more than a quarter prefer emojis to words when expressing their feelings. A survey by Cunard, the cruise company, found that 26% of people have not sent or received a handwritten letter in the past decade. Handwriting is becoming a lost art, as 65% of 25- to 34-year-olds said that they hardly ever pick up a pen. More than three-quarters of young people said they'd become reliant on the autocorrect function of smartphones to ensure that their text messages and emails were spelt correctly, compared with about 50% of the general population. In the survey of more than 2,000 people, 56% said that they'd sent a handwritten letter once every two years at most. Thank you letters were the most common, followed by letters of complaint or condolence, and romantic messages. More than half of respondents, 57%, said that their handwriting had deteriorated because they wrote so rarely. 31% said they did not have time to handwrite letters, and 15% said they did not know the proper way to start and end a letter. The nostalgia value of a handwritten letter remains high, however, with 89% of people saying that they would love to receive more and 70% saying that they had a treasured collection of letters received in the past. Um, and this article was written because Wednesday, June the 27th, was actually National Writing Day, prompting a campaign to keep the art of handwritten letters alive. Cunard's transatlantic liner, Queen Mary II, has a Royal Mail postbox on board, And the company has opened its archives at the University of Liverpool, which include accounts of voyages written by Charles Dickens, Rudyard Kipling and Winston Churchill. Angus Struthers of Cunard said, we hope that we can encourage people to be inspired and put pen to paper. By encouraging people to write at least one letter a year, we hope to keep the craft alive for years to come and I have to say the pleasure of receiving a handwritten (laughs) letter uh, is very great it is I
0: had one this week and it was like golden I mean yes I know I can't remember the last time (laughs) I had a handwritten it is extraordinary isn't it it is and you know my children particularly I suspect they might get one a year
2: and it's probably from me
0: (laughs) (laughs) and I am finding writing my signature a lot harder
2: well I was going to say I found my handwriting as well as it is is, lazier. Yes. oh dear Well, let's move on. We have John to
0: thank for this next article. Uh, It's a piece written by Bill Bryson, and it's about Birmingham, which is, I think people have a sort of love-hate relationship, really. So it goes, the last time I was in Birmingham was in 2008, when Campaign for the Preservation of Rural England launched an anti litter campaign called Stop the Drop. And they sent me to all three party conferences to try to drum up support. It was a strange experience. I went first to Bournemouth and talked talk to a small group of Lib Dems. So small, in fact, that we could have held the meeting in the hotel lift and still had room for the sandwich trolley. But in 2008, the Lib Dems were hopelessly inconsequential. People forget that that is essentially their default mode. mode so it didn't greatly matter. Then I went to Manchester for a breakfast with Labour MPs, but nobody turned up. Honestly, not one person. So that was a magnificent failure although we did get to take a lot of doughnuts home. That left just the Conservatives in Birmingham. They gave us a slot at the conference itself, which seemed much more encouraging. This was my chance, not only to address the Tory faithful, but the whole nation on television, so I worked really hard on my speech. On the day itself, I went to the conference centre in Birmingham, was dusted lavishly with makeup, and positioned in the wings. When I was introduced, I strode onto the stage to the lightest applause ever heard in a public place. There were only about 30 people in the auditorium. Six were conspicuously asleep, and the rest, I think, were dead. I was sorely tempted to say, shall I start now, or shall we wait for the body bags to get here? I gave my speech and departed without disturbing any of those who were still breathing. I learned later that that's the way party conferences always are, The only time the seats fill is when the leader speaks. Afterwards, I walked back to the station through Victoria Square and up New Street, all now cosily pedestrianised. I couldn't believe how improved the city was. It occurred to me then that I should come back one day and have a better look. And now was that day. The first time I came to Birmingham, I had never seen a city that was this ugly on purpose. Where I came from, there was plenty of ugliness, but it was mostly accidental. This looked built to be ugly, and indeed it was. The culprit was a man named Sir Herbert Manzoni, city engineer from 1935 to 1963, who thought old buildings more sentimental than valuable and wanted to build an entirely new Birmingham. He is the man who filled the city with inner ring roads, dank pedestrian subways, massive transport interchanges and brutalist tower blocks in short, made Birmingham as horrible a place as you could find. At the Birmingham Museum and Art Gallery, there is a fascinating room devoted to Manzoni's vision. It contains a giant model of a proposed civic quarter in a style that might be called Canberra meets Nazi Nuremberg. On the walls overlooking the model are visionary drawings, beautifully drafted, showing park-like motorways cutting through the city, lined on both sides with avenues of high-rise public housing, all surrounded by lots of greenery. A good, a good deal of it actually looks quite exciting. The problem is that most of it was never built, and the parts that were built didn't gleam for long. Within 25 years, more than 200 council tower blocks had serious structural problems, and most have since been torn down. Manzoni demolished many of Birmingham's best buildings, but mercifully spared the museum and art gallery. It remains the most wonderful institution and it has the best and most stylish museum cafe in the universe. Any of you been there? I haven't. I spent a a happy couple of hours prowling through its many galleries, then went out and had a good tramp through the city, impressed by its improvements. Birmingham really has made great strides in restoring itself to agreeableness, but I'm afraid those days are coming to an end. Just after my visit, the age of austerity caught up with the city in a big way, as the Council announced massive spending cuts. Under the new plans, two-thirds of city employees will be made redundant. The new £189 central library, opened in 2013, will have its staffing levels halved and its opening hours reduced from 73 a week to 40. Across the city, football pitches and play areas will be closed. CCTV cameras will no longer be monitored continuously. Birmingham, instead of becoming a greener, cleaner, more congenial place, will be dowdier, dirtier and more unsafe. I love a city with vision.
2: In 1660, Parliament passed into law...
1: An act for a perpetual anniversary Thanksgiving on the 9th and 20th day of May.
0: And the reason? Well, on that day, King Charles II was restored to the throne after nine years of exile, following his defeat here at Fort Royal Hill. It's still kept as a bank holiday, more or less, and John Plush visited the commandery to inspect this year's festivities.
6: Thank you. Enjoy your chocolate. Game over. We'll see you next year. And with that, the King and his entourage left the Great Hall of the Commandery at the end of this year's celebrations of Oak Apple Day.
5: It was Royal Oak Day or Oak Apple Day up until 1859. At the start of the day, Joe
6: Willis, one of the guides at the commandery, talked me through what happens on Oak Apple Day.
5: We are celebrating Oak Apple, uh, which is the celebration of the restoration of King Charles II back to the throne in 1660. We've got the militia in, so they're talking about how they were trained as pikemen and musketeers, and um, people can see Charles II. We've got um, a mummers' play, which has going to be great fun. I'm overseeing... Or trying to oversee the 17th-century games, can't let the children get on with it at the moment.
6: Well, the first person I want to talk to is King Charles himself. But on my way to his pavilion, I've come across someone whom the king must favour above all else: his cook.
4: Right, his Majesty this morning has a fresh gravlax of trout. That's a spiced dish of trout that's been preserved in salt so it will have been caught a little while ago but you make a savory dish of it and it's sliced very very thin rather like gravlax of salmon because asparagus is in season it has an asparagus sauce to go with it it's the season of the year where milk and butter and cheese are very prevalent because all the herding animals are flowing with milk and of course lots of activity in the poultry yard so lots of eggs The herbs are at their best, so we're having herbed eggs, which is a dish made with soft cheese that's halfway through the cheesemaking process um, and dressed with thyme and parsley. So we not only eat seasonally, we try to eat dishes that were original to the time. We would have had a lot of saved food that we've stored through the winter. Things got salted, things got turned into sausages and one of the dishes we have for His Majesty today is a black pudding made to a recipe that was written down in 1680. It was written down by a lady called Mary Hodgetts who came from a little village halfway between Pershaw and Worcester. And it contains 13 different spices, including cardamom. We think that actually it's a much older recipe. It could easily be medieval because of the mix of spices that are in it. And when Mary wrote it down in 1680, she recorded it as a good recipe of long family history and much used. So what's His Majesty's favourite Certainly he will require wine, but Worcester is a great city and many things come up the River Severn, so I'm sure we can find him a decent dish of wine and maybe some savouries and a few sweet biscuits. I think that would be a good repast for the king.
6: I'm here, actually, now, with with King Charles II. Um, King Charles, are you a good king? I would like to think so. I'm popular with the people. <laughs> um, obviously, they allowed me to be restored to my rightful place as, as king, um, following the, the death of the parliamentarian Cromwell. Um, and yes, I think I'm quite judicious. Did you enjoy your holiday abroad? Yeah, it wasn't my rightful place, but... Was acceptable. <laughs> and what are your plans for the future now? Um, I plan basically on um, getting an air to keep my line going, um, and basically ruling wisely and justly, and putting the the Dutch in their place. Your Majesty, thank you very much. So I'm confronted with a gentleman here. Nice bushy whiskers and a bright red jacket.
7: <laughs> I'm a typical 17th century musketeer. Um, the red coat is what came from when they had the new model army. So they d- gave them a uniform. Until then there wasn't a uniform. So red was the cheapest dye around. So British Army being what it was, even though it's newly founded, the cheapest possible. 17th century they haven't got any money anyway they spent it all in the war the breeches, typical boots, I've got bucket top boots a sword which I don't use very much, I use it for chopping up wood or uh, cutting up a bit of meat but actual fighting no, it's more of a comfort than anything else around me is a bandolier
6: what are these made of? these little
7: Little, little wooden um, cartridges, each one carries gunpowder enough for one shot so that's it and then the musket this one it's a slightly newer musket than the other ones there's a matchlock musket and a flintlock musket this is a flintlock and the other ones had a match, piece of burning string so that was a matchlock but this one you just put powder into a slot you close that up then you turn the gun around you put one of your bandoliers, you pull the powder down. Then you put a piece of wadding down. You take out this ramrod, and then you go and ram it home. That compresses the wadding on top of the gunpowder. And Then you get a musket ball, put that down, and then you're ready to fire. So when you do it, you hold it up and then you pull the trigger and makes a spark sets off the gunpowder in there um big bang and a flash comes out the end of the barrel along with the musket ball okay <laughs> thank you very much all right cheers, cheers then. other as we weave a true tale of politics religion monarchy including a bloody battle fought right here in the heart of worcester the
3: faithful city
4: civil war stories stars charles
3: I.
6: civil war stories is a dramatized chronicle of the events surrounding and during the english civil war in which jonathan darby and claire warboys of the swan repertory company are playing all the parts spanning several centuries and with very little rehearsal Jonathan, how long have you been rehearsing this? Well, we started a couple of months
7: ago. It's been sort of quite bitty, really. So we we rehearsed it only for about three or four days, didn't we? And then we did it at a couple of high schools in Worcester. Um, And then we haven't thought about it
1: for a while. And then we're doing a public performance um, in the Commandery today. And then there's another one, The Ring, which is down by the river, I think, which is
7: next
3: month. 18th of June. 18th
6: of
1: June. On a sort of Monday afternoon, we're doing
7: it again.
0: Claire,
6: you've got your family here. Yes, an uh, 11-year-old daughter and a 7-year-old son
0: who watch a lot of horrible histories and have uh, been telling us all about the
6: Civil War, so it's quite nice to get their approval. Yeah. Yeah. Do, do you reckon you learned something about all this?
1: Definitely. Absolutely, yeah. 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 In fact, we were slightly, well, not worried, but you, you, something like this, especially performing it here, in front of people who either work at the Commandery or members of the Battle of Worcester Society, think, oh, we've got to get the facts right.
0: Um, it's written by Ruth Richardson, primarily. Um, we've sort of added little sort of contributions here and there. It's a devised piece but between Jonathan and Ruth.
6: Well, Claire Warboys and Jonathan Darby, thank you very much. You're very <laughs> welcome, thanks. Thank <laughs> you. Well, to round off the day, it's the turn of the Morris dancers, the Bedcut Morris dancers. <laughs> Chris Burton's the squire of Bedcote Morris. Chris, you come from Stourbridge. Why Bedcote? Bedcote
1: is the old manorial name for what became Stourbridge in late years. Originally there was a Bedcote manor. The name survives in a couple of manifestations. There's,
6: a, I think there's a Bedcote drive in Stourbridge and there's Bedcote Morris dancers. Craig Simmons is the choreographer. We start off by hitting sticks in a series of three and that goes around... Two times or three times, I think. And then someone will do a figure of eight. That's repeated a couple of times, so more sticking. Then the second person will do a figure of eight around the other two. More sticking again. And then the third person will do a figure of eight. After that, the three put their hands in the middle and dance around for eight steps. And then back. Then they do sticking again, round in threes. And then they kind of put their sticks sideways in a triangle in the middle of them. And they dance around that and back again for eight steps and eight steps back and then they do the clashing and after that's finished everyone jumps and faces outwards to finish
4: And so here ends the story of what happened to me to us, to all of us We are lucky today that we have democracy and the right to a vote once of age and that we have this peaceful place in which to live
7: As High Peter's once said,
4: When you are asked where you have been, and what you have seen,
7: Tell them you have been at Worcester,
4: Where England's sorrows began,
7: and and are now now happily
3: ended.
0: Well, um, earlier in the programme we listened to some very moving but quite melancholy poems from World War I and Catherine has um, gathered together and Phil, I think,
3: mm-hmm. a couple more, three yeah. more,
2: which they're going to read and they're of a sort of lighter nature, I believe, and
0: back to the railway theme, is that right?
2: Well, we're making a link with the previous po- right. poems um, about High Summer and returning to poetry written during World War I with the first poem, Adelstrop, by Edward Thomas. Uh, Edward Thomas was a writer who died at the Battle of Arras in 1916. And the poem, Adelstrop, is a very famous poem. It's in fact um, purported to be the nation's 20th most favourite poem. Um, so I'm going to read that first and then Phil is going to explore a different theme from, with Adelstrop as his starting point. Yes, I remember Adelstrop, the name because one afternoon of heat, the express train drew up there unwontedly. It was late June. The steam hissed, someone cleared his throat. No one left, and no one came on the bare platform. What I saw was Adelstrop, only the name, and willows, willow herb, and grass, and meadowsweet, and haycocks dry no whit less still and lonely fair than the high cloudlets in the sky and for that minute a bird a blackbird sang close by and around him mistier father and father all the birds of oxfordshire and gloucestershire
1: wonderful poem uh, inevitably, something as famous that, as that, I guess, is bound to uh, promote skits and responses. Here's one I found. It's called Addle What? by someone called mm-hmm. Teresius. Hey, Cox and better sweet. I wouldn't know. I never looked outside the train. Just drank canned beer from a plastic cup until the damn thing started again. <laughs> it's a bit downbeat, really, <laughs> isn't it? Anyway, we're going to continue our journey along the same line or perhaps this isn't as far, my geography isn't what it should be but we're going to Pershore Station for a poem by John Betjeman and there's a wonderful example of heretic license in here we'll see if you can spot it Pershore Station or a liverish journey, first class <clears throat> The train at Pershore Station was waiting that Sunday night Gas light on the platform, in my carriage electric light "'Gaslight on Frosty, Frosty Evergreens, Electric on Empire Wood, "'the Victorian world and the present in a moment's neighbourhood. "'There was no one about but a conscript who was saying goodbye to his love "'on the windy, weedy platform with the sprinkled stars above. "'When sudden the waiting stillness shook with the ancient spells "'of an older world than all our worlds in the sign and the sound of the Pershore bells, "'they were ringing them down for evensong in the lighted abbey near.' sands which had poured through apple-boughs for seven centuries here. With guilt, remorse, eternity, the void within me fills, and I thought of her left behind me in the Herefordshire hills. I remembered her defencelessness as I made my heart a stone, till she wove her self-protection round and left me on my own. And plunged in a deep self-pity, I dreamed of another wife, and lusted for freckled faces, and lived a separate life. One word would have made her love me, one word would have made her turn. But the word I never murmured, and now I am left to burn. Evesham, Oxford and London, the carriage is new and smart. I am cushioned and soft and heated, with a dead weight in my heart.' Now, for those of you who know Pershaw, you will know full well that the Abbey is nowhere near the railway station. Mm. <laughs> Possibly Betjeman's hearing was exceptionally
3: exceptionally
0: good. I was, I was really concentrating and thinking, well, I'm going to miss it, and I did. <laughs> I love that. Well, sadly, what I'm going to read next is going slightly less. Cheerful, but I think it's very important, and it was an article that featured in our local community magazine. Um, I think it's not just thought-provoking but worth sharing with people for its content, and it's tit- entitled "Before I die." dot 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 let's make some plans." In every life, there are only two days that contain less than 24 hours: the day that we are born and the day that we die. A lot of planning goes into a birth. An expectant mother and her partner will normally attend antenatal classes and will often write a birth plan, expressing expectations of what they would like and how they would like things to be done, if possible, and what they would prefer not to happen. By contrast, people rarely make plans for the manner of their death. Organising wills and funeral plans are reasonably common, but how many people approaching the end of their lives know that they can write what is effectively a death plan as well. In exactly the same way as a birth plan, you can express wishes about how you would like things to be done if possible and what you would not want to happen. When asked, most people would say that they would rather die at home than in a hospital and some very elderly or sick people would wish to avoid ever going back to hospital and would rather let nature take its course. If these wishes aren't discussed or recorded, people get onto the conveyor belt of care and end up in hospital and having interventions that they may not actually want. A group of like-minded people have come together to form a community collaborative called Before I Die... Worcestershire. The aim is to encourage discussion and debate about issues relating to death, dying and mortality, with the aim of celebrating the life left to live, and enabling people to have the best natural death possible. The group is organizing a free workshop on August the 4th for anybody interested in understanding a bit more about how to go about making plans, recording wishes, and discussing discussing issues with family and friends. If you would like to know more or to book a place on the workshop, please get in touch via our email address before i die Worc- I'm going to read that out again. It's before I die, all one word, and then wuss, W-O-R-C-S. So that's all together, at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook page where other events will be publicised, and that's www.facebook.com slash before I die, wuss, as in W-O-R-C-S, slash. So do follow that up if you're interested. I hope it hasn't made you all horribly depressed. Um, I must say that on a personal note my family did experience just the sort of situation that was described um, and it resulted in my mum being very open to making um, plans really about how she wants to sort of live out the last few years of her life Um, and I, I think it's been a very helpful and... Um, useful experience for all of us and we now feel quite ready for when she becomes poorly because we know how she wants to be or where she wants to be and how she and and the sort of things that she doesn't want to have happen Um, because we we had to go through that and it, it wasn't very easy or nice so anyway that's the end of the less cheerful stuff and we're going to move on to another John Plush special if you're interested in classical violin you will probably have heard of Rachel Podger She is internationally acclaimed as one of the very best classical and Baroque violinists in the world, with at least 30 CDs to her name. She gives masterclasses in violin and cello in America, Italy and the UK. Her recordings of Bach have been top choice in BBC Radio 3's Building a Library, and she has been guest director with the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, with whom she has toured throughout Europe. She also visited Worcester which is where John Plush met up with her.
6: I'm in Old St Martin's Church on the Corn Market in Worcester and behind me you can hear famous violinist Rachel Podger rehearsing for a concert she's giving here tonight. Rachel is internationally acknowledged as a leading interpreter of Baroque and classical music and she's very graciously agreed to talk to us between rehearsal and concert. Rachel, On behalf of The Talking Newspaper, welcome to Worcester. Thank you. Now, you've recently released a CD featuring Vivaldi's Four Seasons. How do you bring a fresh look to such a frequently recorded piece?
8: It's a very good question, really, because everyone knows that piece. Um, It's so well known that you hear it in hotel lifts, and uh, I mean, there's a reason for its popularity because it, it is—it's got some great tunes, hasn't it? And it's got—it's very programmatic, so it's very um, attractive because you can really hear the birds in the little trills, and you can—you can hear the dog in the, in the viola part, and and the, the the fear of the shepherd before the storm comes, and you know, it's—it's it's so well illustrated in musical terms, uh, so it is a pretty special piece. But uh, let's not forget that it's Of course these concertos, four concertos, uh, it's really good to put them into context as well because of course Vivaldi wrote a lot of concertos as we know. He wrote about 250 just for violin. It's lots isn't it? I mean they're not very long in themselves, individual pieces. They're about um, between 8 and 11 minutes each. And I've played quite a few of them now and um, recorded four sets um, and normally in one opus there are about 12 concertos so I've played quite a few and I must say the more I get to know his music the more fabulous I find it it's a little bit like just getting to know a person you know the more you discover about them and the more fascinated you become if they're interesting um, and so the seasons really do stand out as, as particularly programmatic kind of interesting pieces um, so what I thought I'd do is really just put them into context in my mind and really look at the text and just do what was there. And the other difference that I get, I guess on our recording is that we don't have a large orchestra, we just have a smaller... or It's just really single string, so there are only eight players. So there's me, then there's a string quartet, so two violins, viola, cello, and then there's a violone, uh, which is a fretted kind of double bass instrument. Then we have a thiorbo, which is a lute with a really, really long neck, uh, can play uh, really low bass notes, 16-foot notes. Um, and then there's an organ and a harpsichord. So there are actually eight players. And uh, you might think, oh, that might sound rather, you know, puny or not very dramatic, but actually we do make quite a racket <laughs> when we need to, you know, in the stormy bits. And and it can also be very, very soft. And the great thing about that is, is that you have, because it's more like chamber music, and you, you have more flexibility, you can talk to each other more in, while you're playing. Despite
6: being a world-renowned performer in Baroque and classical music, you're equally at home with very modern compositions, uh, new commission by Owen Park, for example.
8: Yes, that's quite a very recent thing, actually. I mean, I, I, I played a fair bit of contemporary music when I was growing up, just to, to get to know it, you know, the, the way you do when you learn uh, repertoire. Um, so I played some at school and in the orchestra, which was a, a bit of an adventure. Um, quite kind of atonal stuff, actually, at the time. It was a bit of an experiment, which was really interesting. Uh, and it definitely widens your horizons. But since I've got completely steeped into Baroque and, and uh, early classical and classical music, um, I haven't really had the opportunity, to to be honest. I've, I've, you know, I'm not kind of close to the idea. So when this, this opportunity occurred, um, to, this came about because I was doing a project with this vocal group called Watchers Eight, so eight singers. Um, and we, we were going to do a project together, which we've, we've actually now premiered, uh, called A Guardian Angel. And there's a piece by Heinrich Franz Ignaz von Bieber. It's a bit of a mouthful, isn't it? Um, uh, a bohemian composer from the 17th century, uh, a real whiz on the violin. Um, he, he wrote a passacaglia for solo violin, and, which is a very beautiful piece. And the, uh, the director of Voce's Eight, he heard that me play that piece on a CD and he thought, oh gosh, wouldn't it be great if we could do something around that? And so he approached me and we thought, okay, let's see what we can do. Well, there aren't any pieces for eight singers and one violin, are there? Um, so why don't we ask someone to write one? <laughs> so we did. So Owen Park, who's a young composer, he wrote a piece. And there, there actually is another piece by James Macmillan. Uh, which we also play. So we, we do those in the concert programme, we do those at the end of each half. And it's rather effective. Um, I, f- I found it really spellbinding, actually, because the, the roles of the instrument and the singers are very different, of course. And then when they come together, it's kind of really significant. and There's a real kind of hidden message in it. And it's all to do with angels, that programme. It's lovely.
6: 2018 sees you recording the Bach cello suites transposed for violin. Now, I would imagine that a composer for the cello would have had the voice and the character of the cello in his mind when he wrote it. So how do you stay faithful to that character when you're up an octave and a bit on a violin?
8: Mm, Very good question. Um, I'm not actually completely sure how much Bach writes for the instrument and how much he writes just, you know coming from him, coming from his mind and his heart and his soul all put together. Um, I think there's probably a very good balance between the two because, of course, he does write incredibly well for the violin, as we know from the solo pieces. He writes... Actually, I don't think he writes particularly well for singers, what I hear from singers' point of view. Um, it's quite kind of angular, his music, at times. Are obviously very chromatic and quite hard to pitch at times. Um... And I've also done a bit of singing myself, so I I remember that. Um, For keyboard, of course, it's fantastic, the writing. So I think he writes very, very well for keyboard. For cello, I think he also writes very well. He obviously knew all instruments equally well. Um, He actually played the violin. I don't think he played the cello, but we know he played the flute, Uh, because his main instrument being the organ and keyboard, you know, harpsichord. Um, So that taken to one side, so he writes these pieces for the cello, but at the same time, of course, in his life and throughout his career, he reused, he kind of recycled his own material and used them in lots of other pieces. So you might find um, piece, uh, movements from a concerto for oboe or for um, for violin uh, appear in a cantata movement, because, of course, he wrote lots of cantatas Apparently, they're they're more than we think. About 100 are lost, actually, isn't that sad? But we do have lots of them, of course. Um, And um, so he he kind of uses his own material and, and, and redoes it. I think sometimes he might have been under pressure you know time pressure needed to do that but also he it's very interesting how he does that sometimes he uses the same material in a sacred context you know for a cantata or so and then he'll he'll use it for a, a secular piece um and so you kind of wonder you know how significant is it then to him um to have the meaning behind the the music and can you you can just uh, put different words to it, you know, and then it changes completely. So does it depend on how you play it, or is it the affect? So w- with that kind of approach, I then came to the cello suites, which, of course, I've known for, for years, you know, just hearing them. And, and, of course, I recorded the solo Bach as one of my first solo recordings, um, you know, 20 years ago or so now, or probably more. And I was actually approached by my, my record label, which is Channel Classics, Um Channel Classics Records and they actually suggested to me look Rachel why don't you record those again because a lot of artists you know re-record something so epic and I thought oh I could do and then I thought well why would I want to do that slightly navel gazing a thing to do and rather egocentric I thought and I also wasn't quite sure whether I could play them any better (laughs) and I just thought why not play them on the violin? It hasn't really been done before, as far as I know. And they, they thought, oh, that's fantastic. It's never been done before. Let's do that. So they jumped at it. And I've played them now in quite a few concerts, and I'm going to be recording them. So, yes, it, it, they do work, to answer your question, they do work on the violin, even though it's uh, obviously much higher. It's an octave and a fifth up. Um, you get much more lightness in the dances um, you probably don't get as much resonance, of course, because the instrument is much smaller than a cello. Uh, you don't get this kind of growly kind of depth thing that you get with a cello, which is really idiomatic to the instrument. But you, you get other things, of course. You get kind of light-footedness, and you get resonance too. You get lots of drama, and you get there's a lot of joy in it. And I just love the pieces, so couldn't keep my hands off them, really. <laughs> <laughs>
6: to, to many people, Bach is tantamount to a deity. Is that true for you?
8: Yes in parts but I also see um, and hear the human being very much I think his his music seems you know sometimes you you hear a turn a phrase or you you witness um, a, a, a kind of progression of harmony and you think oh my goodness that's such a human emotion you couldn't hardly put it into words it was something very tender very touching to it um at times and of course it can be really bombastic, too, and dramatic and, and glorious. Um, so there's so many emotions in the music, so many affects. And so I think he was probably quite a complex person, or, or if he didn't seem to be, he brought that out in his music. So it's definitely human. I, I mean, I completely understand the, the deity thing. And of course, you know, we all kind of bow down before him, don't we, really? He's such a genius. Yeah.
6: So can you tell us a little bit about your violin? Mm.
8: Yes, so this violin I have here, it's um, it's I think it's very beautiful. It's kind of brown, uh, browny, red, red, browny kind of color. Um, it's old. It's from 1739, and it was made in Genoa, Italy, by someone called Pesarini. And we don't know much about him. Um, he's not very well known, and we don't really know whether there are any other violins. So he's not one of the the really well known Italians. But nevertheless, he's Italian, and it sounds beautiful. I think it's got, um. The, if you look at the back, uh, it's all one piece. Often it's split down the middle, so you'll see the grain. And um, it's the, the setup that I have it in is a Baroque setup, of course, because it's a uh, Baroque violin. I actually found it in a so-called modern setup. So all instruments that were made before the end of the 18th century were then changed in order to project more, to make more sound. Uh, later on. and uh, so that that happened around the, the yeah the end of the eighteenth century. So they were opened up, so they had a bit of an operation, and the bass bar, which is a piece of wood that runs underneath the lowest string, that was made thicker and bigger to to make more sound. and uh, the neck was changed, so the neck on a modern setup it is at an angle to the body. so you get more tension on the string, so the strings are tighter when pulled across. so that makes sense. Uh, so on a Brock setup, the neck comes straight out of the body of the instrument and there's less tension then. Uh, the bridge is also slightly more squat and the tailpiece is just simpler um, and there are no fine tuners. If you're familiar with, with string instruments, you normally have a fine tuner to, 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 to tune the, the metal strings and because these are, these are gut strings, so the E string and the A and the D, they're all made of pure gut, so there's no covering, there's no, they're not wound strings like on a modern instrument, and the G string is the only one that has some winding, because otherwise it would be huge, that you wouldn't be able to get your finger on it. <laughs> um, so the, the old parts of, the, the, the parts of this violin that are old are the body and the scroll, and the neck I had redone, so I had it so-called re if you see what I mean, it's not really a word, is it? Um, And it makes the most beautiful sound. Shall I play you a bit? So this is a little bit of the Bieber pasacalé that I talked about earlier. And I'll just play you the end.
6: Before you do, Rachel Podger, thank you very
8: much. (laughs) It's my pleasure.
0: Rachel Podger in an exclusive interview there for The Talking Magazine. She rounded off her chat with John Plush with a unique performance just for us of part of Bieber's Passacaglia for solo violin. Rather special. And now on to some light-hearted current news. This article appeared recently in The Times. And it's all about Dummies. So it's called the 40 stone or the headline is the 40 stone rescue dummy with a big role tackling obesity crisis. As doctors struggle to cope with the increasing burden of the obesity epidemic, at least one person has a reason to be cheerful. Ruth Lee, a former pram repairer from Merseyside, has made more than £100,000 from orders for overweight dummies used to train paramedics and firefighters. The majority of ambulance trusts and all fire and rescue services use the company she founded as their source of bariatric mannequins, which weigh up to 40 stone. And there's a wonderful photo of one lying on a mattress and it's just extraordinary. It looks like a huge sort of blow up doll. The mannequins are part of a growing list of bariatric equipment used by the emergency services. The latest figures show that 26% of adults and 20% of children aged 10 to 11 were classified as obese. The demand for the bariatric dummies, known affectionately as Barry, has created a windfall for a company in Denbyshire. Mrs Lee, 80, founder of Ruth Lee Limited, said that she was delighted. I can only look in wonder at how the company has transformed, probably epitomised by the arrival of Barry a 40-stone mannequin who I could not even put my arms around, let alone carry. Mrs Lee began the business as a sideline in the 1980s when she and her husband, Ron, ran a company that specialised in repairing silver cross prams. Their sewing machinists also did jobs repairing tarpaulins for Merseyside Fire Brigade. She said, One dull winter's day, I remember them coming in with a torn dummy made of sack and filled with sand asking whether we could repair it. It seemed an inauspicious task on a dreary day, but never mind, business is business. While I was repairing the dummy, I thought, you know what, I could do a better job than this. Having no experience of making dummies, I guess this was a bit of a shot in the dark. She and Mr Lee borrowed money to develop a dummy that had a long neck and flexible joints that impressed the firemen so much that they ordered 20 Needing more orders to keep the business going, she drove to the next nearest fire brigade in North Wales, where she sold another 20. My next step was to investigate the number of brigades in the country, about 68 at the time, and over the next three years, with most of my time spent in the car and knocking on doors, I visited all of them, with 100% success. Mrs Lee, who remains on the board of the company, added clients including the MOD, Police Forces, Ambulance Service and the RNLI, which which once called her to report that dear Fred and Ruth had performed well in a North Sea rescue exercise. We were successful with all these organisations and they're still our customers, she said. The figure for total spending on bariatric equipment to cater for obese people runs into millions of pounds as public money is invested in reinforced ambulances, hospital beds and scanners that have enough power to penetrate thickest layers of skin. In 2016-17, there were 617,000 admissions to NHS hospitals in which obesity was a factor, an increase of 18% from the previous, Lee, previous year. Sorry. <laughs> Mrs. Lee, who lives next door to her company's factory, recalled that she became a celebrated figure among the emergency services with a variety of nicknames. It was the bag lady, the dummy woman, and no doubt other names that my customers were far too polite to mention, she said. I can imagine that she'll probably go on making a bit more money, don't you? (laughs) Because I don't think that we're all going to suddenly get thin. So that brings me on to, I think, an excerpt from a book, which you were going
2: to deliver, Catherine, about sayings. Yes, Yes, that's right. Yes, so this is quite light-hearted. It's a book of popular philosophy by a writer called Julian Baggini, in which he looks at a hundred phrases that we use as clichés or sayings or platitudes perhaps and he examines them slightly more than we are inclined to do and I've picked one of these out and uh, you might be interested in um, his discussion of it. It's the phrase life is not a dress rehearsal which um, I often hear people say when they want to encourage themselves often to um, go for it really. Life is not a dress rehearsal. This is what Julian Baggini has to say about it. It's easy saying what things are not. Life is not a bed of roses. God is not an old man sitting in a cloud. Winning isn't everything. Some negations, however, are more informative than others. Thinking about why an egg is not an elephant won't get you very far, whereas realising life is not a dress rehearsal might. It's a reminder that this life is a one-shot deal and if you mess it up, there's no second try. However, you need to push the metaphor a little further if you are to work out what you've got to do about this. For if life is not a dress rehearsal, is it the main performance or merely an audition? There's an urgency in both, but it's not of the same kind. The problem with the audition metaphor is that No one really knows the criteria for the casting or even the nature of the show. Actually, it looks as if there is no director at all and that the more we attempt to shine in the spotlight, the less able we are to see that the dark stalls are empty. The idea of audition implies the need to impress someone. But if life is just the show, as long as we're not so bad as to get booed off, why worry about how others judge us? When the curtain comes down, we won't be around to see if we get a standing ovation. But what then is the point of a spectacle without spectators? The reality is that life is not a dress rehearsal because it is no kind of performance at all. We must act, not in the theatrical sense, but as agents in the real world. The metaphor doubly misleads because living well takes practice. In that sense, life is a continuous series of dress rehearsals, of trying different things, attempting to improve, all for its own sake, and never with any final definitive performance, which is quite thought-provoking, I think. Mm, I'm not sure I agree with everything he has to say. But but just to finish, he he has a, a few other sayings that he... Throws down at the at the end, so that in a way I think it often underlines that people have been saying the same or roughly the same thing for as long time uh, for a long time. So he gives a Scottish proverb: "Be happy while you're living, for you're a long time dead." <laughs> <laughs> um, one from Ovid: "Tempus edax rerum," which apparently means "time, the devourer of everything." Oh. And Robert Herrick. Poet in the sixteenth century, seventeenth century, gather ye rosebuds while ye may. may. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Can you add to that, Phil?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Well, uh, I think that book may make a reappearance. Just right, yeah. Yeah. Yes. Back to Angela Lunyon. Have you ever been aroused by an artichoke, provoked by a pepper, or enchanted by an endive? Our local authoress, Angela Lanyon, finds lots of excitement in her neighbourhood greengrocers. Well, at any rate, she did when she was 19. Not sure if this is autobiographical or not, but she's written us a story about passion in the parsnips in her local veggie shop. Angela Lanyon reads P's and
5: Q's. He didn't look stupid. In fact, he was drop-dead gorgeous. But what was so fascinating about a cauliflower? I wondered what he was up to. Can I help? I asked. Do you know, he said, they've now got a machine that picks cauliflowers and shrink-wraps them. One of those food inspectors. He'll be on about keeping things clean, I thought, as I caught sight of myself in the mirror. It was really there to see the customers weren't dropping things into their shopping bags, not for me to admire myself. At least that's what Mr Hadley said, and it was his shop's, I suppose he had to be right. It was raining, and I'd been unloading the deliveries. My hair was plastered to my face, and I'd all down the front of my overall. I brushed it off as casually as I could. Not a lot of variety, have you, Kelly? The guy was looking round, not as if he was thinking of buying anything, more as if he wondered there was anything worth buying. "'I wasn't worried about him knowing my name "'because I was wearing a badge. "'Customer friendly, that's what Mr Hadley said. "'No demand,' slipped off my tongue without a thought. "'Do you want to speak to the boss?' I said, "'not wanting to get involved. "'I'd much rather speak to you,' he grinned. "'He moved round to the tomatoes. "'By the way, I'm Dan.' "'Seemed to suit him somehow. "'Dark wavy hair, big blue eyes and a broad chest.' Really filled his shirt when I looked at him properly. He wouldn't have any trouble lifting a sack of potatoes, that was for sure. I was watching him carefully, because I knew the tomatoes had gone over, not that they were much to start with, but he was inspecting them closely, and I was inspecting him closely. I'd plenty of time, as the shop was empty, till old Mrs. Price came in. You're right, then, I asked, once she was inside and shaking her umbrella. "'Good weather for ducks.' "'Mr Hadley had been keen on customer relations, "'and she was one of our regulars. "'What are you after this morning, love?' "'I don't like these cauliflowers,' she said. "'Not in plastic. "'So much for no old Dan,' I thought. "'Keeps them nice,' I told her with a big smile. "'Fresh.' "'Can't breathe,' she replied. "'Like having your corsets on all night.' "'I didn't know anything about corsets, "'but I knew Mr Hadley liked things wrapped.' "'Don't want them picked over,' he'd say. "'You get left with the rubbish.' "'Not that most of it wasn't rubbish to start with. "'Since he'd heard a new and green grocer was opening, "'he'd sort of lost interest, "'and the shop was going downhill as fast as a ski slope.' "'Grumbling to herself, Miss Price moved over to the carrots. "'I watched Dan watching her. "'Maybe he's after her purse,' I thought. "'Mr Hadley always said there were criminals everywhere, "'and maybe he was right.' Maybe Dan was one of them, or perhaps it a weapon in the sports bag he was carrying. Thoughts rushed through my head till I felt dizzy. In a flash, I saw myself the heroine of a hold-up, striking him down with a marrow. We'd only two left, and either of them would have stopped a bus. But where was the boss? I couldn't see myself protecting Miss Price all on my own. Kelly Carter, nineteen-year-old Greengrocer's assistant in hold-up drama. Maybe I'd have my picture in the paper or even on telly. What if he had a gun? It didn't seem worth risking my life for a few pounds of weak old sprouts and some spotted bananas. Is there anything you fancy? I moved closer to Miss Price, just to be on hand if he did try anything. I want something to tempt me. The poor old thing looked like she was past it, but I wasn't half tempted by Dan. In fact, the closer I got, the more I fancied him. What sort of thing, he said. "'moving towards her. "'Miss Price turned. "'Oh!' she said, as if she'd noticed him for the first time. "'I've been watching these cooking programmes. "'You see all sorts of fancy things.' "'Dan was reaching under his coat. "'Whatever was coming next? "'Oh!' Miss Price squeaked when she caught sight of what he was holding. "'I knew what it was, but I'm not sure she did. "'It's an aubergine,' he told her. "'Mediterranean diet. You've heard of that.' I don't think her eyesight was all that good, and she lunged for the door. But what about your carrots? I didn't want her going before she'd bought anything. You'll need some carrots for your dinner. She edged around Dan, but as she passed the display, she grabbed a couple of carrots and plumped them down by the till. While she fumbled with her purse, she kept looking over her shoulder, like she thought he might be dangerous. As soon as she'd left the shop, I turned on him. I don't know what you think you're doing, frightening the poor old thing. She might have had a stroke. I'll be having aubergines in my shop, he explained, and peppers, and celeriac, and raduccio, and... Hold on a minute. I wanted to be clear about one thing. What shop? Dan Collie. Flowers and veggies. He gave me a great big smile. I'm opening next week, and... uh, wondered if you'd like to come and uh, mind my P's and Q's. I can tell you're good with customers." I looked around the antique shrink-wrapped cauliflowers and tired tomatoes, and then back at him and his aubergine. Well, I couldn't say I was spoilt for choice, could I? All right, big boy, I said, it's a deal.
0: Well, that was Angela Lanyon, finding love amongst the legumes. Can I make any more (laughs) (laughs) witticisms?
1: I expect (laughs) so, given time, Um,
0: yes. Uh, That's almost all we've got time for. But before we sign off, and before I say a few bits, Phil is going to end like he began, with a few verses, hopefully.
1: Yes, I've found some limericks. I love limericks because you can speak them with that sort of sing-song rhythm, can't you? Which I must admit, I'm tempted to read all poetry like, as you may well have noticed. These are by Ogden Nash, who's an American author. I think I'm looking at Catherine, and she's greening at me. He must be then, in that case, uh, of 20th century. Um, We'll start with one called Benjamin. I don't know why it's called Benjamin. There was a brave girl of Connecticut who flagged the express with her petticoat, which her elders defined as presence of mind, but deplorable absence of etiquette. Oh, so clever. Carlotta, aren't they? There was an old man in a trunk who inquired of his wife, am I drunk? She replied with regret, I'm afraid so, my pet. And he answered, just as I (laughs) thank. My favourite one coming up. It's called Arthur. Again, goodness knows why. There was an old man of Calcutta. Who coated his tonsils with butter, thus converting his snore from a thunderous roar to a soft oleaginous mutter?
3: Oh, wow. That's so
0: good. <laughs> I think, actually, this is just maybe sort of with an idea that, you know, maybe our listeners could send in their best limericks. And oh, wouldn't that be one. good? Yes. Yeah. Be read wonderful. it next yes, time yes, we're yes, on. Yes, what do fun. you reckon? it be fun. Yes, I well, think, yeah. Okay, over to you, readers. A little bit of a challenge there. So that's it for this evening. I'd like to say a a huge thank you to John for guiding us through this first magazine magazine edition for us newbies. We do hope you like what we've put together. And a big thank you too for um, our copiers for this edition. That's Sylvia and David Day. And finally, thanks very much to Phil and Catherine for their fabulous contributions this evening. As I said at the beginning, any feedback will be most appreciated. So it's goodbye from me, Pippa. And from me, Catherine. And from me,
1: Phil.